All right, if you are a realtor looking to turn your job as a realtor into a business, I am sitting here with Christine Marcasello, who has 80 million sold in the past year and has sold 182 units with only five agents and one showing assistant. This is obviously not the norm. Welcome to the Freedom Chaser Six Figure Strategies Podcast. If you're an agent or an investor yet to hit six figures, this is the show for you. We take a deep dive into strategies to help you achieve the goal of six figures so that you can grow up to seven figures eventually. If you want even more in-depth knowledge, sign up for a weekly mastermind for only $100 a month. That will be in the link below. Christine, super pumped to have you here. Can we just start it off with the epiphany that you had when you realized that you're probably working way too much and you wanted to turn your job into a business? Absolutely. Well, I worked way too much for a very long time, way too long, unfortunately. But um, I had been selling real estate for about 10 years when this epiphany occurred. And I can't promise you that it was actually just a light bulb and it was all super easy. It was more of... Um, oh my gosh, I'm literally so successful in making all this money, but I want to quit and take a $50,000 a year job. That's really hitting rock bottom is what I call it. Um, I had two little children at the time and I just, you know, really wasn't seeing them as much as I wanted to. And, um, this is like so sad to repeat now, but like we actually like with all this money I was making, you know, we had bought a camp and we had bought a boat and we actually named the boat daddy days so that my husband had something to do with my children while I worked all the time. So over time, it led me to this point in 2016 where I just kind of looked up one day and was like, I can't go on like this and I need to figure something else out or I literally need to quit and just get a job. Okay. That makes perfect sense. I mean, that's actually... <laughs> That's actually kind of something that happens often, right? You become successful in real estate and you end up kind of on the hamster wheel because you're always reactive and you're always running after the next deal. Um, so obviously you had time crunches and it became a necessity, not something that you wanted to do, but something you had to do because you said you were considering leaving your job for you know something less stressful for salary. So let's talk about the action steps that you did in order to start eliminating yourself from the job. So... Again, this wasn't just one moment in time where it was all of a sudden it appeared to me what to do. This was several years leading up to the moment I knew I had to do it was learning about teams and how to build a team and what the correct way to do that was. And I spent a lot of time really just diving into the learning side of that just to kind of dip my toe in the water. I actually never wanted a team. I never thought teams were... I actually thought teams were a terrible way to sell real estate, right? So it's kind of interesting because um, that's just the perspective I used to have, but that's because I didn't really understand what a high functioning team looked like. I just saw more of what I would call groups in our market that were just running around like crazy out of control people, just quantity, 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 not really doing things the way I considered to be best practice, which I thought only an individual agent could provide. But come to find out that as you get busier as an individual agent, you actually can't provide the level of service that you should be providing to your clients because you're just, you know, running in all different directions. So, so I started learning about how to build a team and just the philosophies behind different teams. And I think that that was a critical point of having a successful team at this point, because I kind of set it up right from the beginning. I just didn't 
decide, oh, I want to have a team. So look at me. I have this big team. I'm so cool. It was really purposeful in the way about going about it. So that's what I would suggest first. Just really do your research and understand, you know, what are my options when it comes to a team? Because there are all types of different teams out there. So know that first. So that was kind of the first step was just sort of researching the way I wanted to do it. That makes sense. So you said something before I, I found kind of interesting. You mentioned that you didn't even want a team. That wasn't something that you wanted to do because it sounds like you didn't like the way a lot of other people were running their teams. Can I get a little bit more context there? Yeah, I just, you know, in our marketplace, it was really, um, there were no teams that I could look up to, really. I had to get to a national level to really start looking at high performing, high functioning teams where the team members were treated well and if not you know the focus over the we call it rainmaker or the head agent right so we didn't want i didn't i thought a team meant you had a big ego if i'm being honest i thought like those were the people that had teams they have a big ego they just want you know they just want to tell themselves how great they are all the time that was my perspective and that was a wrong perspective but at the time that's just what i thought and I really was very afraid of letting the customer service side of my business that I had built organically over 10 years go. And I really was attached to these ideas that no one can write an MLS description as good as me. Nobody could possibly take a photo. I was taking my own photos at the time. This was 2016. Like I had a wide angle camera. Look at me. Like I had this great technology, right? Like nobody could possibly take a picture as good as me. Nobody could edit it as good as me. Nobody. So I had all these lies that I was telling myself about all of the reasons why I could never have a team because how do you possibly trust your most important work to somebody else? So really that's why I had this negative opinion of what a team was from the get-go. So I had to work through that as part of the process. So it's actually extremely common. You're running a business by yourself and you know, when you get started, you're doing everything, right? So you kind of get used to doing everything. And then typically when you hand off a, a task to somebody else, they're probably not going to do it up to your level. Or if they do, it's going to take a fair amount of training. So like, let's talk about, you mentioned the limiting belief. I think you ordered it differently, but we'll call it a limiting belief that. So what helps you overcome that? Because that's, I mean, I have unfortunately been a control freak too, where I, ha I hate giving tasks away because it's like, oh, they're not going to do it as good as me. So it's like, how are you able to overcome that thought process? Because I know it's super common out there. It was, it was truly just hitting that rock bottom and knowing that the only way forward was through. So I knew that I needed to commit to going slower to go faster for a minute. And I just came to that realization that that was the only way I, I was at the point where, you know, I was an individual agent. I was selling at that point about 65 houses by myself. Like I said, two small kids at home. Like I could not sell another house without going insane. So I knew that that was the only way to try to push through that ceiling was that I had to hire leverage. I had to get somebody to get some of these tasks off my back. And so it was just that, that, you know, there was no other option. And that's what initially led me down this path. So when I decided to hire my first assistant, I really, you know, I think a huge mistake that a lot of people make is they go for the agent role first and they don't get their systems in order. And I think that that is probably the biggest fatal flaw of all real estate teams is that they are afraid to make a salaried hire because of course they're afraid to, you know, that's somebody that has to get paid every two weeks. And that's scary. Even when you're making $500,000, it's still scary to be responsible for somebody else's livelihood. But I think that that was one of the critical key steps that I did right is hiring that administrative support first. So after I hired her, her and I really just spent 
you know, it was, it was painful because it's hard for a real estate agent, right. To slow down and to really focus on systems. I mean, that's painful for a lot of us, but we spent those first six months building literally everything I did, taking out of my brain and putting it into a system. How could she do it for me? That was fail proof. And how could we checklist it? And how could we, you know, make it really just run itself and that's what we did. So we spent a lot of time building that, but that was that's a critical thing that you must do, I think, if you want to run a successful team. Um, you can never take on great talent in terms of agents if you don't have anything to offer them other than yourself and saying, look how great I am, come work with me. That's not gonna last very long. So you're going to be a lot more successful with your agent hires that you bring on if you have a really strong foundation of tools and systems and leverage for them as well. So it's not just about getting you help. It's about setting your foundation of your team up. Absolutely. So you're saying a lot of things here that I think are really important. Number one, when you chose to hire, you were already at capacity, right? So you had to hire. It was a necessity. You weren't hiring out of leisure. You weren't just like, oh, I'm going to hire somebody so I could do less work because that could really become a challenge. <laughs> and then you also mentioned this is also very important, too. Um, you hired an administrative support before you started hiring more agents because you had um, the foresight to know that the systems and processes are far more important than just adding agents because the agents... If they don't have the support they need, they're not going to sell houses or they're just going to end up moving somewhere else. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You can't, I mean, the, one of the main reasons an agent joins a team, you know, other than leads, you can, they can join you for leads, but if you lead with leads, that's your value, then they're just going to leave you for the next person who has more leads than you. So you can't, you can't lead with leads or you better be prepared to do whatever it takes to provide more and more and more and, and fill that need for them because what they join you for is what they'll leave you for, right? So it's much better to hire to um, some sort of system or value that can make their lives better as well faster so that they can do more business faster and they can have the leverage that they need to you know, get to where you were in a third of the time or less. So that was really how I looked at it and it it did end up working out, you know, wonderfully. But you can't make that first hire for freedom. Like you're not going to that's not your freedom point, <laughs> you know? Like at this point, now where I am today, you know, 5 years basically on that journey of starting to hire, this is freedom, but it's going to take you 3 to 5 years to really get there to set it up right. So so you can't get in your head like I'm just going to hire, you know, two more agents and one admin person and then I'm going to wipe my hands of it and move on. I mean, you you could, I guess, but that's not going to be your profitable way towards building a team. Absolutely. It sounds so much easier than it really is. I, mean, I could certainly promise you that. I mean, you could say that. <laughs> it's like I'm going to hire two agents and an admin and I'm not going to do any work anymore. Unfortunately, that, that doesn't tend to work out that way. So let, let's talk about where you went next. So you hired the administrative assistant. You, you set up all your SOPs. How did you start growing from zero to five then? We got all of that stuff in place. And then, so you have to decide on what model you want to run your team on, because um, if you don't understand what your organizational chart needs to look like, you're just kind of hiring blind and there's no plan. And that's not a very good way to grow the team because again, people just don't get that. They don't understand what you're doing. It's much easier to attract talent if you have a plan and you can show them where you're going and what your vision is. So I would say start with an organizational chart. So for me, that meant deciding on, I wanted to run a specialist model team. 
So I knew that if we were going to run a specialist model that I wanted to hire a buyer's agent next. And that was literally just because I did want more freedom. I mean, obviously that was what we were doing here was trying to get me back my life. And the assistant was great, but guess what happened? I hired the assistant, I had more time and my business grew again. So like the end of that year, I was doing 80 transactions by myself. Now I had the assistant support, so it didn't feel like I was working anymore, but I was still at max capacity. So that was a nice thing, but at the same time, it really wasn't any leverage. So I knew the next step for me was a buyer specialist because that was the time consuming part of my life was showings and open houses and doing all that. So I figured, well, I can still handle listings and this buyer specialist can take over the buyers. So I did have two failed hires. I mean, you're going to make hires. They're not going to work out. And that's okay. I think that's also one of the biggest things when you're building a team is like, don't settle, you know, whatever your standard is, like stick to it. Don't say, you know, minimum standard, like your standard is your standard. And the type of person you want to hire is the type of person that you want to hire. I think a lot of people get, they fall in love with candidates, you know, oh, you want to work on my team? Like, oh my God, don't do that. Like really spend the time and vet people and don't just take anybody that raises their hand. I think you really need to look for somebody who's going to be an extension of you. And so you need to put in that effort and find the right person if you want to succeed. My first buyer's agent is still with us today. And her first year, she sold 75 homes. So um, you can find that right person. Like they exist and they will work on a team. I think a lot of agents too get in their head like, well, nobody great would work on a team. That's a lie. That is absolutely a lie. There are people out there that don't want to be you. They don't want to own a team. They don't want to run a team. They do want to be part of something. And they also want to make hundreds of thousands of dollars when they weren't going to do that before. So they exist. So that was our next step was that buyer specialist. And that was the true beginning of having time. Like from, I had weekends again, I was like, it was heavenly. Those couple of years was just like the sweet spot with just a few, you know, a couple of us, it gets more complicated as you grow, but with just the assistant and the buyer specialist, those couple of years were just beautiful. I can only imagine. Did you feel weird at first when you had free time on weekends? Did you almost, <laughs> yeah, right. I, I totally, I could totally, I could totally relate to that. Like when I don't have a mountain of work to do, like I get stressed out because I don't have work to do. It's like, Oh my God, I'm supposed to be doing something. All right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, that's awesome. So you mentioned those people are out there and you have to go find them. What does the hiring process look like then? Do you have personality tests or, or what, what kind of things are you utilizing in order to find them? We're crazy. <laughs> and this might be too intense for a lot of people, but I, I mean, for me, it's all about trying to scare them away. And then if they stick around, like, okay, now, now we can talk. Like, I make my job description sound very scary. I make, you know, I want to attract people that I call them the Super Bowl team. Like I want people that want to be the best of the best and they want to work for the best of the best. And they, you know, they have that high drive and high desire to be that person and they are attracted to high standards. So I start that from the beginning with our job description and then you know, we start with just a phone interview. You have to make it through that. If we're hiring for an administrative role, I mean, they're having tests just in their email grammar. I mean, I give them a step-by-step -step instruction, you know, send me, send me this and this, take this test, do this. If they don't get those three steps right, they're not an operational hire. Like there's no chance you're going to be able to work for me if you can't do the three instructions while you're applying for the job. So I think, you know, being, like I said, being picky and being strict is, 
um, an important part. But so we do do a personality test. We, um, that's not a make it or break it. That's just a show me who you are naturally. Like, how do you show up? And then we do um, what we call a life story interview, which is kind of just like a, a resume, but we talk through, I wanna see track record, right? So I wanna see like that they've had struggles and they've pushed through them and, and basically repeated that pattern throughout their lives. So you can see that in people, even young people, you know, they had a paper route or they, you know, they worked early and they, you know, rose up through the ranks in somehow or way, or they were, you know, a waitress and they absolutely loved it and they, you know, got energy from keeping track of everything. And I, there's just ways to see people's track record. And so that's an important part. And then we do kind of a motivational interview. Like, where do you see yourself in five years? Like people need to have big goals or they're not going to be motivated to do what we need them to do here to meet our standards. So these, these are kind of like an evolving process. And then, you know, they meet now multiple team members, but at the time it was just my assistant, you know, she would kind of vet them and she knew me and what it was like working with and for me. And so she would kind of see like, are they going to be okay with this? Do they, do they like structure? Are they driven? So, you know, there's a process. It's not, again, a big, a big mistake is just taking anybody who raises their hand as like warm blood. Absolutely. I 100% agree with you there. You obviously can't take anybody that's breathing. That's, that's not a winning business model at all. I love how you said you're trying to scare them away with the job post itself. Um, <laughs> and then you make them specifically jump through hoops. Um, I'm curious. I mean, you mentioned the personality test isn't anything. There's a variety of them. Is there a preferred test that you guys use? I work for Keller Williams as a brokerage and we have our own. It's called a KPA. It's, you know, an in-depth personality assessment. So I don't know what a comparable one on the market would be, but I also, we do start with a disc. So um, to me, if you're hiring for an agent role, you, it would be very, very, very rare to not have any sort of interpersonal, you know, lead with interpersonal or be a people person or have some strong drive. So an I or a D type of personality. Um, if you didn't have either of those, it'd be really hard to su be successful as an agent. And on the operational side, there is absolutely no way that you can do that job if you don't have a C, you know, which is just real, you know, concise and details. And so those, that's the test I like to just take a glance at first and then kind of move on to an in-depth. But of course you want to see people that are highly responsive, that are, you know, have some structure to them, have certainly drive. Um, that's the biggest thing I think is, you know, sort of a natural competitive drive on the agent side. Absolutely. So I mean, let's let's dive into this a little bit, because I know a lot of team leaders that are afraid to hire high D's because they're pretty often going to leave or they're going to go work for somebody else. You often end up training them and then they end up, you know, doing their own thing. That doesn't seem to scare you at all because you said you're looking for people highly ambitious and people that have drive. So let's kind of dive into that. Why doesn't that scare you like it might scare somebody else? Uh, without like risking offending anyone. <laughs> um that way that's because they're afraid that they can't make their world big enough for that person i mean if your world can expand to fill um somebody else's needs then there's never going to be a problem with a high d personality because they just want to go after something that they want right they they can do it with you or they can do it outside of you but if you do things right i mean together you're going to achieve more than anything you could possibly achieve alone so as long as you can grow your world to fit them in there and what i mean by that is like for the buyer's agent my first buyer's agent now runs her own team of buyer specialists i don't meet with every single person and that's an additional leverage piece for me and it's also a growth opportunity for her so you know it 
as long as you have an opportunity for somebody, then you shouldn't ever be afraid of a high D. They, they could take your business farther than you could ever dream of, you know, even operationally. You know, if you have somebody that's a high D, they've got to do their jobs first, but they could build a transaction coordination company. They could, I mean, there's, it's unlimited. So high D is nothing to be afraid of. It's just going to push you faster and harder and you have more responsibility to grow yourself so that they can, you know, not outgrow you. That was such a brilliant answer. I love that because you just have to, <laughs> you have to stay one step ahead of them essentially and make sure that you're able to give them the opportunity to grow because once they feel constricted, that's when they're going to leave. If they continue to have new opportunities and new training, they're probably going to stay. That, that was a tremendous answer. Thank you for that. And you really worded it well. So, I mean, I, I really think you nailed that. Um, <clears throat> cool. So now we have the agents, often high D, often ambitious. What kind of lead flow strategies are you guys utilizing now in order to keep them busy? So, I mean, we have an organically grown business. And I think I mentioned this. And you're like, what do you mean by that? And it's just my business was so old, so to speak, before I started a team that, you know, I had a big book of past clients and I had always done a pretty decent job of making sure we had great relationships and were in touch with them. So as the team kind of grew um, and as we focused on listings more, as I started to focus on listings more, I kind of decided that every listing needs to produce buyer leads. Now I have this buyer specialist, I need to produce her leads. So we would really try hard to go for the marketing angle. We weren't really prospecting based, we were more marketing based. So when those leads would come in just off of organic marketing through social media or just, you know, through Zillow even, I mean, just having great photography, great um, marketing elements. We would just make sure we convert those leads i mean that was always my secret as an individual agent too was converting i mean i think a lot of agents especially these last couple of years that we've come through just there's so many leads being thrown at them and they're just kind of letting them bounce off and picking and cherry picking and that's not really the way to i think anybody can have a really big business without just paying for random leads you're going to get inquiries and those inquiries are the gold right so you just have to be great at follow-up so for us that's a high part of our standard is is just follow-up um, accountability and also honestly this is so old school but just open houses when it was just me and her that was our team's number one lead source was holding our own listings open and converting those buyer leads that came through those open houses i think a lot of agents are quick to say oh every every person has an agent that's not true that is absolutely not true. And it's your best way to meet um, ready, willing, and able buyer leads. So um, we don't we don't pay for any any leads. I say that we do do Google, like we have a Google business page and we do pay Google monthly, but we hardly get any leads from that. We don't do Zillow, we don't do, we don't do any sort of paid leads. We're just generating them from marketing our own listings. And now, you know, we do have more agents than just me and her. I don't sell anymore at all, actually. Um, but our listing agents are very prospecting heavy. So our buyer's agents, not so much. They just do open houses and they follow up with leads and make sure they're being converted. And our listing agents do prospect for listings. But our, that's our main strategy is just marketing our listings. Simplicity is brilliance, right? Because if it works, it works. So there's no reason to reinvent the wheel. Um, open houses are definitely the easiest way to find a ready, willing, and able buyer because somebody walking in that door 
they tend to be wanting to buy a house or they might be a, a neighbor, a, na a nosy neighbor that might be selling in the future. So um, yeah, open houses are a tremendous strategy. Is there anything crazy you guys do with the open houses? Are you the type of person that throws up 50 signs and, and lots of pre-marketing? No, I, I would say it's basic. You know, obviously we get all, we get them to sign in and then we have a process that happens after we have those sign-ins. It's more about the follow-up. It's not about any crazy tactic at the open house or anything like that. And I can't tell you with honesty that we do anything consistent pre-marketing. Yes, sometimes we do circle prospecting. Yes, sometimes we do door knocking. Yes, sometimes we do mailers, but there's no consistent program that we're running other than really good marketing and making sure our homes are priced right and that they look better than they are. That's really the trick. Great staging, great photo photos. So I mean, essentially for your buyer's agents, you're leveraging your listing inventory and you're putting them in, in open houses. For your listing agents, I'm assuming they're doing a lot of cold calling or something like that. Yeah, I mean, again, we do have organic business that's coming in. We have a database of 8,000 people and we do what's called a 36 touch program. So, you know, it's multimedia attempts to stay in touch with our database throughout the year, client events, all of those things you might traditionally hear about. So we're running all of those programs um, parallel to the prospecting efforts. So we get, you know, some organic flowing in that are just past clients, referrals, SOI. And then also um, we've just recently shifted because obviously we're in a different market now. So right now we're going heavy on expired. So that's going to be our strategy for this year. Um, and really last year it was more about database and just procuring referrals. All that stuff really works. So you mentioned the changing market. Tell me how your market feels now. So, I mean, I'll even preface this by giving you an idea how mine is. I'm in the suburbs of Chicago. We're 1.7 months supply and it's kind of slow. Um, <laughs> it's kind of slow, especially compared to six months ago, right? Um, so we probably lost about 10% on value over the peak in like May. So I'm just curious comparatively, and obviously I didn't put you this beforehand, so you don't have to be perfect and on the dot here. But kind of give me an idea what your market's looking like. Yeah, I, I don't have any exact stats for you, but um, essentially we we just had a multiple offer in our newest listing. So it's still happening for a certain price point. What what we've really seen is a drop in the luxury type of market um, that has gotten very, very, very quiet. Um, but in general, if something looks good in its price rate, it's still selling. It might be instead of four days average, we're probably, this isn't reflected in numbers yet because it really hasn't, there hasn't been enough time for the numbers to re release to reflect this. But I would say on average now we're looking more like 15 days, 20 days, and that's going to get worse and worse and worse. I think we might get a little blip from a spring market that we usually do, but I think next summer is going to be pretty dreary. But we don't, I mean, the biggest thing is mindset with that. Like we're, we're excited for that because from our perspective, it's just going to be, you know, there's less business to go around and there's more people going for it, but we have the experience and the talent and we know what we're doing and we're going to just use this time to try to take market share um, and come out of whatever this downtime is with even more market share on the flip side. So it doesn't, you know, a market like this doesn't scare us. It just will show you who is actually willing to work and who is not. And that's okay because, you know, if people aren't willing to work, then next. <laughs> Absolutely. 100% agreed. I'm not scared at all. I'm excited. Um, I would love for it to crash because if that happens, that's like the best opportunity in the world to buy assets and stuff like that. And not only that, but you're going to see a large amount because we're very high. I think we're historically high in realtors right now. And, and if the market corrects, obviously, there's not going to be enough business for all of them. So a lot of them are going to disappear, which actually leaves more room for the people that are doing the work, as you just said. Um, so brilliant. Totally. Exactly. So I, I got to get into this because you mentioned you started investing as well. 
So you said you had nothing and now you have a $5 million net worth after having nothing for over 15 years. That's amazing. What is your investing strategy if there's only one? Um, just get started is like find a way to make that. Yeah. Find a way to make that first purchase happen. I don't care if it's a trailer. It does not matter. Like our first purchase was um, $59,000 and today it's worth maybe 200,000, but we've rented it since 2009 every single year, starting at 700 a month. And now the rent is 1400 a month. Um, we've paid it off in that time frame, and it's like this huge cash flowing asset that was only $59,000. Nothing special, nothing fancy, nothing sexy, nothing. Just start somewhere and to buy that. Uh, we borrowed $5,000 from my husband's grandfather. And because I knew we wouldn't get approved for a loan, I scoured at the time Craigslist for a owner financing situation on $59,000. So I don't like to hear people say, oh, they can't do it. They can't do blah, blah, blah. Like it doesn't, I don't, no excuses. Just figure something out and do it and start there. And so we bought that first one in 2009. We didn't buy our next investment property till 2013. We didn't have any extra money. Like that just wasn't happening. So we bought the next one. It was $94,000 today. That one's probably worth 330,000 and we rent it for 2250 a month and we owe nothing on it. So it's like these little steps turn into big steps. It's almost like com compounding interest in a way, but from a property standpoint, as long as you're taking action, the worst thing you can do is take no action, you know, or get caught up in, in trends, you know, even like, I think people are oftentimes overpaying for Airbnbs because they don't really understand the value of the real estate and they're using like a commercial formula or an investor formula. And that's okay, but just you have to be prepared for the risk that you're taking from the market standpoint should regulations or things change. So that's my advice is just start somewhere, no matter how small, if it's cash flowing at all, don't worry about metrics and how much and percentages. If you're cash flowing $100 a month and that's all you can do right now, then then do it and just start. Zero to one is the hardest one. Um, one of the guests we had recently is just like, if you just buy a house every year, even if there's no appreciation and, and no, what are the other words? <laughs> And no cash flow and no cash flow. It's still worth it over 30 years because somebody else is going to pay off that mortgage for you. And all of a sudden you have this asset. So, yes, just go out there and get started. What I loved about what you said is you were scouring Craigslist for seller financing. I think seller financing, anybody that knows seller financing in the next six to 18 months has a massive opportunity over people that don't know it. Because as the market declines, this becomes a strategy that becomes more and more appealing. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I think people get scared, you know, they're just, they don't know what they don't know. And they're just afraid to get taken advantage of. But it's not that scary. It really isn't. If you have the right team. I mean, I live in New York, and this property we bought was in Florida. I mean, I flew down there. I was actually pregnant with my first child. I flew down there. I met with the guy. I went to a, a title company and I said, how do I do this? How do we write a private mortgage? I made sure I had a legitimate person doing that. I mean, you just have to figure it out. And you have to have your hands and everything. Don't trust people to do it all for you. Take action and go figure it out. But if you do that and you're willing to do that, get your hands dirty a little bit, like it's not scary. It's it's really not. And it's up to you to take advantage of situations. They're not gonna come to you. Precisely, you gotta go out and get it. That is for sure. So, so Christine, obviously you've done a lot of cool stuff. You've built up this massive real estate team. You've built up this awesome portfolio. 
Um, what is your vision for 2023? We just passed New Year's. I'm sure you got some goals. I'd love to hear some of them. This is an interesting time for me because um, 2021 was the first time I got out of production. So I've been going through like an identity crisis the last year really is how it feels. It's almost like, you know, like an Olympic athlete might describe after they leave their sport and they're like thrown into the world, like, what do I do now? And that's kind of how what I've been working through the last year, because now that my team is a business, and when I say that, I just mean that I'm not really trading my time for money anymore. It's just happening on its own. I work in it because I choose to, but I don't really need to. I could, I mean, I'm 42 years old. I could retire tomorrow and it would be fine. But because I don't know anything else except that pace of like being completely moving every minute of the day, it's been a real challenge. So my goals like this next year are more about like figuring out like what's next for me personally, because I feel like the business is at a place now where it's, it's running, it's producing the assets in terms of the properties are running, they're producing. We, I got into um, syndications this year. So like now I feel like I'm moving into that investor quadrant because now, you know, money's working while you sleep type of thing. So it's all like amazing. And, you know, I have so much like gratitude for everything that is happening in my life. And now it's just kind of what's next, what, um, what can I do to make sure, you know, like a big focus for me is my children now, because obviously I spent all those years not really being around and I'm really lucky because they're only 13 and nine. So now they have, you know, a mom that's here as if I was just a regular, that's going to sound terrible, a regular stay at home mom. They, they're not going to remember those years where I was, you know, busting my butt and sending them off to daycare and to their dad every weekend. Like they're not going to remember that. So it's kind of nice to be able to be around for them now. So um, as far as my team, like my goal is always that all the members of my team, you know, are well compensated. They're making, I don't want people on my team that are making $20,000. Like that's not exciting for me or them. I want them to be making six figures plus always. I want to teach them how to, you know, grow their own wealth. And I love teaching and speaking. I mean, that's why I'm here today. You know, I've been doing a lot more of that. That kind of fills my bucket now that I'm not working with clients anymore. Um, and so, yeah. So that's my agenda for the next year. I think that's the perfect model, essentially. Build a business that gives you active income, remove yourself from that business, and then start investing so that you can get passive income. And then it's like you have an active business that's providing income for you, and then you have a passive business just in case something goes wrong. There's really nothing that could go wrong there. So I love what you're doing there. Um, we'd love to ask this question. If you had a billion dollars and 100 lifetimes of cash flow coming in every month, what would you be doing this with your time? Traveling all over the world. I mean, that's probably such a cliche answer, but if I didn't have to think about a dollar ever again, I would just be seeing the world. There's no such thing as cliche here. I mean, we're just, we're trying to get what Christine thinks. And if you want to travel, that's amazing. Go travel. I mean, that's what you're working so hard for, right? That's what freedom is, is not having to worry financially, you know, about um, anything and being able to just do what you choose to do every single day. So I think that that is why I work so hard and why I've been so purposeful about everything is to build to this sort of moment in time where it's, you know, it's not perfect yet. And I'm certainly not a billionaire, but um, it's at the point where it's, it feels free. I feel the freedom. Well, that's wonderful. I'm so happy for you. This is the Freedom Chasers podcast. So that's what we're all about. We're all about finding freedom. So, so thank you so much, Christine Marcosello, for giving us a glimpse into your business. And to those of you out there chasing freedom, 
Please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Engagement is like gold to us. We can't do what we're doing without it. Reviews and subscriptions, particularly on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube, are worth more than money. So please do what you can to support the show. And remember, freedom is acquired one action at a time. Pick no more than three of the strategies that we discuss on this show and take massive action. Tell somebody you know that can hold you accountable. And before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. So thank you for tuning in, and we'll catch you on the next one.